You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxham. On today's show, we get an advanced sneak peek at April's Unbound Book Festival, now in its fourth year with festival director Alex George, and we have a brief live a cappella performance to remind us that it is Valentine's Month. But before we journey to the literary side, we will first make a visit to the world of theatre with my first guests, a posse of stars thespians squished into the studio. Monica Palmer, Adam Bretzky, Kirsten Varner-Bellman and Don Otto. Hello, darlings. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are all a week out from opening night for your production of the J.T. Rogers play White People, which opens at Talking Horse Theatre next Friday. And it is a brutally intense play. Do you have any part of your brain that is not consumed with this production anybody can answer <laughs> they're tired they, they don't have any brain left to it's, answer it's, that question it's really intense it's just thinking about everything that the characters go through and then thinking of transforming yourself into that character it, it's really it is a, a mental workout and kiss and we were just saying before the show started that actually your daughter is mm-hmm. in the hickman high school play dearly beloved this yes. weekend so as you've been trying to learn pages and pages of your uh, dialogue then she is also learning her lines so we might get a bit of dearly beloved coming through in white people i hope not <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa yeah. oh gosh i really hope not <laughs> yeah really <laughs> So, Monica, usually when you're here, it's because you're acting in a musical or a comedy. So we spend the whole time laughing. Right. But white people, despite... We still laugh, I mean. <laughs> despite being billed as a dark comedy, it really is more of a harrowing drama with a couple of pithy lines. Yeah, I'm not sure who called it a I dark know. comedy, but it's it's not really a dark comedy. I mean, J.T. Rogers, if you're familiar with his writing, he just won the uh, the Tony last year for best uh, drama or best play for Oslo. And, and, you know, he covers, he has this gift of covering really serious material but there's always a little bit of levity you know there you're gonna you're gonna find those moments where you you know and it's always it's always kind of comedy at the expense of you know realizing how flawed we are as as human beings and so there will be probably moments during white people that you will laugh and and then you'll catch yourself and wonder was it okay to laugh exactly (laughs) well i think it's one of those situations where you almost have to laugh because if you don't laugh then it's Mm. just sad true uh and i think jt does a terrific job of presenting the dialogue and these these thoughts that we all have somewhere in the back of our mind that we try not to acknowledge in public but when somebody else speaks them whether it's stand-up comedy or mm. whether it's you know on a radio show or something like that you identify with you can laugh at because it's not you voicing that but there is a part of you that that identifies with it and says i totally understand where that's coming from mm-hmm. so monica tell us about the play well okay so on the surface you've got uh, it's monologue driven so nobody's interacting with each other we're seeing three little slides slices of life from uh three white people who are kind of sharing their experience of being white in america you've got alan who's uh, talking to us from a bench in stuyvesant square in in brooklyn and or in new york and then you've got this uh, Martin who's up in a high-rise uh, office building and he's the exec you know that everybody looks up to and, and wants to emulate and and he's in St. Louis and then you've got Mara Lynn who's a housewife in North Carolina who has not gotten the 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 white privilege that she thought she was you know she she hasn't cashed in on the possibility she felt as a young woman and and has some bitterness about that too so three very complex characters uh, in in different parts of the country and just kind of um, seeing through their eyes what it's been to be white in America. And what made you want to direct this play? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, so when I first read it, I was like, whoa, you know, that is that is some intense stuff right there. Um, and and I, I immediately pushed it aside. Like, that's that's not for me, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm musical comedy girl. You know, <laughs> everyone who knows me, you know, thinks of, of, you know, laughing and comedy. And so this was something that, you know, it's just like, that's not for me. And it just ate at me 
for weeks after I read the script. I had to pick it up and read it again because I was like, I, I was thinking about it. It was just, it was, it took residency in my brain and I couldn't let it alone. And then I was like, you know what? More than any other piece of art that's challenged me to look at my own privilege and my own biases, this one has made me feel like it was my job to do that work and not someone else's to teach me how to do the work to uncover those biases. But I needed to do some real, like, self reflection about my upbringing in an all-white community and just kind of the seeds that had been planted there um, about other people that I had never even encountered. And so anyway, so I, it challenged me is the best way to, to, to put it. And, you know, I, I was just like, I need to step up to this challenge and, and help to tell the story so other people can, can begin to do this work as well. And Don, before we came on the air, when we were talking a little bit briefly about characters and you said, well, I, I kind of wanted to take this role because I am a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I have two children. There were just some similarities in the lifestyle of your character or the life of your character. And Very yours. much. My, my character, Martin, is a uh, white attorney who uh, is living in Chesterfield, Missouri. He has a son and a daughter. And he very much believes in the uh, very some traditional views of uh, how to dress, how to ta act, how to talk, how to behave in this world. And I am a, a white attorney that grew up in Chesterfield. I have a son and a daughter. And uh, I actually, at a very superficial level, agree with a lot of what my character says. Uh, it's the step that he can't go that we discover in the play, which makes for me this uh, an important thing to do. I've, I've been doing community theater, mostly in Jefferson City, for 25 years. and But I can count probably on one hand the things that... I've seen that I consider important. Mm -hmm. And this was one that is important for people like me. If you're an attorney, if you're an accountant, if you're a banker, if you grew up going to a mostly white school, mostly white college, mostly white friends, which is not unusual, uh, if you live in a mostly white community, this is uh, very important for someone like me, not just for me to do, but it's important for somebody like me to be in the audience and see. And one of the things that he mentions often is the importance of look the part, dress the part, and speak the part, use the right language. So he's he's really about, you know, don't don't code switch in here. Use or do code switch. Use the right language. You're in an office, so I want to uh, I wanna I wanna hear you speak properly. He said there's a line he said something like, if I put the words I be and doing in a sentence, you are not gonna see a lawyer. That's, you can't say, I'd be doing something. That's absolutely right. And uh, that's how I was brought up. You know, I'm, and I'm firmly of the belief that if you address right and you talk right properly in the right situation, you can get away with just about anything. Matter of fact, there was uh, something just on my, my wife loves that uh, Kenda detective guy on one of the shows. And he did the thing where he just dressed and looked good and walked in and got all this information out because he looked like he should have been there and he talked like he should have been there and uh, that is a that is a truism and uh, dressing properly for your job dressing properly for a job interview I truly do believe in that in our play we discover that if that's all you believe that's not enough Tell us a little bit about the person we meet in an office way up high overlooking the waterfront in downtown St. Louis. How did he become the person he is when you think about his backstory? Well, Martin grew up on the streets in Brooklyn uh, and was brought into St. Louis because uh, there were some problems with the law firm that we don't really ever know what they are, but he was the solver. He was the fixer to come and bring them up. He clearly had a rough bringing up but he now is part of the club. He is the uh, country club, the barbecue, the golf and the golf course, you know, eating the right foods, being at the right events. He is now part of the group. But underneath that, he doesn't feel comfortable uh, completely in that world because uh, he doesn't feel like he fits in, which is a, an interesting contrast to people that he doesn't feel are fitting in properly. Uh, from his point of view and can he make that connection that what I feel about my life with these other people who were born into privilege when I worked my way up to get there can I transfer that to these other people who are maybe doing the same thing that I did but aren't here yet 
and um, we'll see if whether he gets there or not. Now, Adam, the play opens with you. You play a history professor living in New York. Tell us about Alan. Yeah, so Alan has a, a Midwestern background, you know, probably comes from the area that uh, Martin has now moved to to sort of escape that urban streets that he's so afraid of. And Alan is really adjusting to this new life in this big city in Stuyvesant Town. And he's engaged with uh, students that he teaches at, at a university. And he's sort of dealing with, on the opposite side of things, he's dressed the part, he's trying to engage with these students that he's trying to communicate knowledge to that don't seem interested in acquiring that knowledge because they're just there to get an easy A or get their general eds out of the way before moving on to what they're really focused on. And so he has a struggle that way, but then he comes from a different perspective where he feels that he's open and honest and embracing of different cultures and ideas. And there are events that happen in the play that make him start questioning his own openness. Right. I think of all the characters, Alan seems the most likable because he, he does seem to be trying to be a good person, which you don't always feel from the other ones. What, what do you like about him? Well, I like that Alan really presents everything that we go through in the play from a logical standpoint. I think, the, as you mentioned, the audience will hopefully like Alan very much from the get-go. But Alan presents these tough thoughts, these things that we don't like to mention in a way that's humorous, in a way that you pay attention to, but also in a way that you say, huh, I wonder if that's true. John said that he identified with the uh, superficiality or the ba background of his character. You're not a history professor. <laughs> I'm not, no. Was there something in Alan's personality that spoke to you? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I love this script. I read it, boy, it's probably been a little over a year now. And what drew me to Alan at first was that this is a guy that's just kind of waiting for his real life to begin. He feels that he is confident in the knowledge that he already possesses and has now stepped into a role where he's passing that knowledge on. But then, as you discover in the play, there is something that challenges that belief and it makes him question who he is and who he has been up until his early 30s. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something in our current culture that a lot of people are questioning is, does my upbringing, does my privilege communicate who I am? Have I been taking advantage? And what can I do in this position of privilege to make other people's lives better? Do I have to give up the privilege to do that? Right. Kirsten, Mara Lynn is just awful. Yes, yes <laughs> I, she is. I imagine being stuck next to her at a dinner party <laughs> and how she would just curdle the food. Tell us about Mara Lynn's life. Uh, Mara Lynn, she was basically the star in her high school. She did, you know, she was the homecoming queen and the, the varsity cheerleader. Um, captain and and she led this very privileged life because she was put on this pedestal or at least in her mind by all of her students or all of the people that she went to school with she met the love of her life who was also a you know star wrestler and so you know had this this great little romance that they had but she was never able to grow she was never able to get out of that mindset of I am important you know, bow down to me, I deserve everything that I can get type of thing. She doesn't, she, she doesn't know how to grow and evolve as a person. She um, still thought of as that all these people that she, you know, talked to in, in school and, and in her mind tried to help and tried to coach along to be better, to be a white person or, or whatever. She thought that She's expecting that to carry over into her adult life. Um, the doctors that she sees, the the people that she needs to talk to. She dropped out of school, uh, dropped out of college. I think because she just didn't fit in with with what, or she wasn't getting the attention that she thought that she deserved. And that's that is her main problem is that everywhere she goes, she is always the victim. Right. She always says that I did what I could. Everyone else around here is is against me. She is married to her high school sweetheart, not the best of men. Not the he, brightest of men. Not the brightest of men. She, they do have a child who has um, disabilities, and I think that that is very hard on her as well because she's still not living that idyllic life that she thought that she would have. 
and she is emotionally drained and physically drained because it's a constant process with this child and she's really not getting any help with her family or from her family from her husband she has to see doctors that she's not particularly keen on and she i mean you can just see this this turmoil in her head of the love for her child but the, at the same time she's so tired of dealing with him and and it just comes out as just complete awfulness on her part and i know that we had talked about you know that there's some things or you know there's a not everyone is truly awful to all each of our characters and there's you know hopefully something that we can take away that is you, you feel sorry for them or you feel bad for them and you had mentioned that uh, Marilyn pretty much is not that likable and I I get that and, and it, it's hard it's um, she just wants what she was promised in her mind so when you go on stage and you're or before you go on stage and you're mentally preparing for who you're going to be for the next hour what imaginary conversations or scenarios are you playing out in your head in that in those moments before you go on stage to become Mara Lynn? Just basically, you know, the feeling of I'm owed things and they're being taken away from me in, in my mind. Just the struggle with a child that you love but you can't help. She's in constant chaos and turmoil in her mind and she just is just you know rattling things off and and basically verbal diarrhea is what Monica keeps on telling me and that, that that's really what it is because her mind is just processing and is on fire twenty four seven and that's part of the reason why she is emotionally and physically drained is because her mind is hates her I mean it, it is nonstop and she's just trying to deal with things the best that she can but it's it's poor <laughs> she's not able to handle it. And, and after the play is over, after you leave her, how do you rinse her out of your brain? How long does that take to get rid of her and be you again? I need some alone time <laughs> afterwards because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to like dump on my family and yeah. dump on anybody else because it's hard. It's it's a hard mindset to get into. And all three of us uh, in the play, interestingly enough, are dealing with how our feelings and our lives are going to affect the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have children. She has a child. Alan's uh, has uh, dealing with uh, uh, two levels of the next generation, uh, both as a professor and as a potential father, and uh, that's that's very very interesting part of the whole play. Is like, yes, you have yourselves, but then what you do affects mm. others, and whether you know it or not. Bad things happen to each of you. Mara Lynn's battle, I think, probably unfurls the slowest during her monologues. Both Alan and Martin's are delivered as gut punches. You don't see coming what does come to both of them. How sympathetic do you think audiences are going to be when, you know, we've, apart from Alan, I think we've got a... A, dis, a degree of dislike towards both Martin and Marilyn. When when you find out the tragedy that occurs, can you be sympathetic to them? Does it win over your dislike of the character? I don't think it does completely. I'm, I'm hoping my, my goal in my character is that people like him, then they don't like him, and in the end they're not sure. Do I like him or do I not like him? Do I feel sorry for him or do I not? It, did he figure out the problem? where he's going or hasn't he and the great thing about this play is it doesn't push an answer on you it doesn't tell you this is what you should be thinking this is what you should be doing but it asks you the questions of yourself and i think with marlin it's more like you feel sorry for her not because of her plight but because of the way that she deals with things then you feel sorry for the way that that's her mindset that that that's the way she grew up and that's the way that she deals with people that are not Caucasian and that's so sad because she is limiting herself so much in everything that she does in her life because of her mindset so you feel sorry because of her her mind and the way that she deals but I don't think you necessarily feel sorry with with the things that she's going through because a lot of it is her own problem she doesn't seem to try no she really does. Alan seems to try. Alan is the one, the history professor. He, you feel for him because something awful happens and he's really grappling with it and he doesn't want to fall into the trap mm-hmm. of becoming the person he doesn't want to be. Well, and I think that's one of the brilliant questions that the play asks of the audience. Um, every single character brings up 
institutional racism in some way, talking about the past as if actions in the past have affected things now. And so your question of does the tragedy that happens to these characters, does that excuse their actions? Does that excuse them? It's almost asking the audience that same question. Monica, do you have a thought on that? Oh, I was just going to say, the second time I read through the play, my general psych class from college came back, and I started thinking of these, uh, Martin and Marilyn, less as like fully developed characters, because it explains why you don't empathize and sympathize with them as much as you do with Alan. I started looking at them as more of a super ego and id in the subconscious, you know, and they're, you know, because Marilyn is all urge and impulse and me, 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 why not, why not me, why didn't I get mine? And Martin is all about the rules and how you must live your life and that's you know the super ego that's where all like Freud said the shame and guilt of our lives come from like we're not living up to this ideal of ourselves and then you've got Alan who's very much an ego character who has to juggle all of these impressions and voices and you know the the, the coding that was you know written on his psyche before he even became a person and then he has to juggle that with what has happened to him in this show that he talks about and and then you get this beautiful uh, kind of display of what happens to us and what we have to deal with in order to move forward when we have something tragic happen to us and we've got all of this coding that we haven't even acknowledged because it's just kind of lurking in their weeds we didn't even know were there. And he has to do that job of the ego of struggling with all of those impressions and also reality. And so that's, you know, on the surface, yes, it's it's three different people living as white people in America. But I think much deeper, it's reflecting the white psyche and like what we all kind of have as baggage in our heads from, you know, racist Uncle Nick or, you know, our teachers, our culture, our media. It's all it's all in there. And so I hope that at some point. You like each of the characters and then dislike each of the characters, so that it helps. Come see the play three or four times. Right. right. I think I think it would be a good idea. I don't think it's a realistic idea, but you you definitely catch new things every time you see it. I wish that there was going to be a talk afterwards. Yes, about, there will be on oh, the will two be? Saturdays. We know for sure there will be talk back sessions um, because this is very much a show that you're going to want to talk with people about afterwards, and right. so we want to provide that opportunity on the two Saturdays we'll be talking um, and, and I you know I encourage people when they leave you know start the conversation with people you care about and people that feel safe around and have this conversation because it, it, it is something to be talked about right so give us a little a quick overview of when where and how okay so we cetera. open next Friday the 8th February 8th and then we have a Friday Saturday night performance and then a Sunday matinee the following weekend same deal but we also pick up a Thursday night performance so it'll okay. be Thursday Friday Saturday evening and uh, it'll end on that Sunday afternoon so just two weekends starting next weekend okay thank you so much to my guests director Monica Palmer and actors Adam Kirsten Varner-Bellman and Don Otto. You can see them next weekend and the following weekend in the production of White People at Talking Horse Theatre. To get tickets, go to talkinghorseproductions.org or call 573-607-1740. The matinee performance on Sunday the 17th will also be interpreted for the hearing impaired. Thank you so much, everybody. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. Week we are going to hop between segments with a musical interlude, courtesy of the Boonslick Chordbusters, who are now hopefully entering the studio. Boonslick Chordbusters, welcome in. <laughs> I can't see them. Um, we have got in the studio coming up Chuck Bay, Jacob Travis, Hugh Emerson, and a fourth tenor who is Alan Wolfe. Okay, welcome in, everybody. We are going a quick turnaround here, so thank you so much for coming in. Chuck, tell us what you have coming up and what you're going to be singing for us. Sure, we're going to be doing our singing annual singing valentine's promotion uh it'll be uh february 13th and 14th which is wednesday and thursday and we will be buzzing around town delivering two love songs four guys and and tuxedos and roses either one six or a dozen roses to anybody you like Uh, we'll do it anywhere anytime you know schools workplace hospital home uh, restaurants all those are are great venues for for this to happen 
And how do people book you? Uh, they can call us uh, on our cell phone. It's 529-6821. Or they can uh, actually order online, too, at uh, cordbusters.com. Uh, so those are the two best ways to do it. And you will go to houses or offices or swimming pools or... <laughs> we will go anywhere. We, we've inter interrupted <laughs> classes, you know. Uh, actually, singing at the elementary schools is great because the little kids just <laughs> eat it up. They think it's wonderful. But, yeah, we'll go literally anywhere. And what does it cost to have you come and perform? It's either 50 70 or $90, depending on how many roses we bring. Oh, okay. That depends on the roses, not the number of songs that you do. Right, right. We okay. do two love songs. Okay. And then either one, six, or a dozen roses. And when you book the, the you to come, can you choose which love songs you have? Well, we, we don't have a, a long set list. We have about four that we choose from. Okay. So, uh, we can tweak it a little bit, but mostly you get what we know. Okay. And so what are you going to sing makes for? Makes everybody happier. <laughs> what are you going to sing for us today? Uh, let me call you sweetheart and heart of my heart. You can call me sweetheart anytime, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go. Whenever you're ready. Sure. <clears throat> let me call you sweetheart. Cord Busters, you can book them to come and do a singing Valentine for you on February the 13th and 14th. To book them, give them a call on 573-529-6821 or you go to cordbusters.com and have four tuxedo-clad singers turn up and serenade your sweetheart with two love songs and roses and a card. Packages begin at $50 and you can be anywhere in uh, Columbia or the surrounding communities. So basically Boone County. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we go to Jeff City, too. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Always a delight to have you in the studio. Thank you. <laughs> See you soon. Yep. Okay, you are listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And hopefully my next guest is close by to come in. Um, my next guest is Alex George, owner of Skylark Bookshop and his own law practice, author of numerous books, including Setting Free the Kites and A Good American, and is also the founder of the Unbound Book Festival, now in its fourth year. Hello, Alex, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hi, Diana. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. So the great thing about hosting this show is that I get to sit down with people who I usually only ever see in passing at the fish counter or in a line waiting to vote at Daniel Boone Regional Library. Plus, I get to root around online as I research somebody which might otherwise seem a little stalkerish, but I find out all sorts of things. So it's oh, very interesting. Oh I always dear. learn something new. Yes. <laughs> so, for example, I feel like I should ask you, first of all, how you came to appear on television dancing in a shark suit. Oh, well, that was, uh, that was a long time ago now, <laughs> and I should probably update my website by the sound of it. So that, w that was when I was involved in Big Surf Water Park down at the Lake of the Ozarks, and... Um, uh, I was in charge. I ran that for a while, and I said, "We need to have a, we need to have a, a, um, 
uh, what do you call it, a, a mascot. Uh, and we had a, a suit made of this shark, and I was the only person who could actually fit into it. Uh, and so I sort of ended up dancing by the side of a pool for the TV commercials. I always said, well, this is all rather undignified, but there, there's probably a book in there somewhere. And I, I did write about it subsequently. Was your face covered, though? So oh, happily, yes. Yeah, no, 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 nobody could tell it was me. So we can't kind of track it down through Google Images. We can't put a face of Alex George in and then, you know, it'll find the shark suit. No, happily not. Happily not. Now, so if anyone who hasn't noticed, we are, of course, both from England. And I wonder, do you say, when people ask you, do you say I'm English or do you say I'm British? Oh, I say I'm English. I have this discussion every time I go back to London with my friend and she says, whoever says they're British? Because maybe I'm telling a story and I said, you know, I'm British. And she said, who says that? Yeah, We all say we're English. Yeah, no, I'm English. (laughs) Okay, I just thought I'd check on that. (laughs) So um, whilst I grew up in the damp and chilly north, you came from the delightful southern town of Marlborough. Yes. In Wiltshire, in the southwest of England. Um, But I think I read that you grew up in France. Uh, I didn't grow up there. I went to school there for a while um, and spent a lot of time there. But no, I grew up in the the West Country. And that's because your parents wanted you to speak French fluently or be a good cook? Well, they wanted me to speak French, and they didn't like me very much, so they just they just sent me away. They sort of put some ocean between us was probably a good idea. So. I can't believe that. <laughs> and you were clearly a very bright child, uh, unlike me, who scrabbled her way to the University of East Anglia to study Swedish. Uh, you went to Oxford University, where you read law at yes. Brasenose College, and alma mater you share with the architect of Brexit, David Cameron. Did you cross over with him at all? No, I didn't know that he was a Brasenose Yes, oh, apparently. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no. No, I'm taking no responsibility for that whatsoever. Though. I think he graduated in 88, so you may have started after him. Uh, oh, no, way before him. Well, he's, he's older than us. What, 98, did you say? 88. Oh, 88. 88, oh, yes. No, so, so we just missed them because I matriculated in 1988. So, okay, yeah, yeah so he, he graduated as you started. Right. And from university, you disappeared into the world of corporate law in mm-hmm. Paris and London for eight years. And at some point in the 90s, you became a writer. And I wonder, do you remember that first piece of blank paper or computer screen and what your first line was like what's that first moment I'm going to be a writer and I'm sitting down at my desk and here's the piece of paper and your pen hovers above the page well I do, I do remember it because I had sort of three chapters of a book in my head I had no idea where it was going to go from there but um and I actually bought a, a computer, and this was in the days where not everybody had a and this was something that came in three enormous boxes, you know, it was very different times. Not uh, a laptop. Not a laptop. Um, and it took about 17 minutes to actually turn on. And I, and so I, I, I did actually begin fairly quickly because I did have a sense of what these first three chapters were going to look like. It was after I did those first three chapters that I ground to a halt and suddenly <laughs> thought, hmm, now what am I going to do? So that, that bit took a little bit longer. Now, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but I actually had one of your books before I even met you. I don't know how I had acquired it, but I have read Wonderful You and Love You Madly. Oh, you Yes, the writing of which earned you some considerable prestige. You were named as one of Britain's top 10 30-something novelists by the Times of London and were the face to watch for fiction in the Independent on Sunday's (laughs) Fresh Talent feature. But I noticed that you don't have them on any of your contemporary websites. Do you not love them any longer? I don't love them, no. <laughs> but they're also, they're, they're not really, they're not available in the States. Okay. Uh, and so... I so, have w- copies. Oh dear, well don't, yeah, you should probably bury them. Or, or <laughs> they, they might possibly be blackmail material. I don't and I, I, don't, I don't love them. Um, and when I moved to the States and published A Good American in 2012, it kind of felt like a fresh, mm. a fresh start to me. So... Um, yeah, we don't we don't talk about those uh, those other. I, I other don't things. think you should be. I I really like them. I don't think oh, you should you. be embarrassed by them. I also noticed that uh, you had once listed your hobbies as cooking and eating complicated meals. And in the dedication at the beginning of Wonderful You, there is my favourite chef, Nigella Lawson. Are you pals? No, no. But there was some. I can't remember why I put that in there, but I think there's a recipe in the book. Oh, okay. Um, that I uh, that I sort of borrowed. I wondered if maybe she was the culinary inspiration that to get through the book you had cooked many of her <laughs> meals and therefore she earned a place well, in the dedication I, list. I, I have cooked many of her meals and funnily enough we're both published by the same 
uh, imprint at Macmillan now. Hmm. Um, so who knows? I may I may meet her yet. You Maybe know. you could invite her to the Unbound Book Festival. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that we're planning to do at some point is to do. We've done a lot of uh, panels about food writing, but I'd really like to do one about cookbook writing which is yeah. a, which is a different thing but in order to do that I, I think in order to do it right you actually need to have a kitchen uh and mm. quite how we do that i haven't, haven't worked that one out yet so uh, but but i would love to have her come yeah she's great it's too bad because back in the day i think it was columbia magazine inside columbia yeah they, they had, had that... a sort of show kitchen right didn't they? yeah no that would have been perfect nobody has a show kitchen any longer yeah to borrow one somewhere that that would be that would be amazing so your two most recent books that people here know and can acquire in the states a good american and setting mm-hmm. free the kites definitely have a maturity of voice to them over your earlier works mm-hmm. like i said i am a fan of the early books too how hard is it as a writer to establish your voice and are you there yet do you feel like alex george the voice is here <laughs> it sounds like a really bad tv show um <laughs> No, I don't think so. I mean, I, uh, I think that as a writer and indeed in any creative endeavor, you're always developing, you're always learning, you're always uh, evolving. Uh, so, no, I don't think so. And I hope I never will get to that point. I hope I'll always be striving to do something new or something better or something different. Uh, certainly the new book that I've just finished that's going to be coming out next year is very, very different from the last two so so no I, I i mean hopefully as i say you know it, writing is a craft and you know one hopes that the more you do the better you get but um uh, i don't think it's a journey that ever really ends i think it was just yesterday in the radio i heard uh someone talking about Ernest Hemingway and he had said that when he finished writing The Old Man and the Sea that when he delivered it he said this is the best that I will ever do that I've ever written and that I ever will write this is it like he peaked at that wow. point I hope, I'm guessing you hope that you don't ever I, well, I, I hope I haven't peaked yet. I mean, they're, they're, you, you never know. I mean, you know, there's, there's a rich, um, if rather sort of sorry, uh, history throughout literature of people who have written an absolutely mind-boggling book at, I don't know, 21 or 22, and they never reach those heights again. Well, we can clearly show that well, that wasn't me, but, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's unusual, I think. I mean, generally speaking, you know, people and certain people I know and I, I enjoy... Uh, I enjoy watching them evolve as a, as, as a writer and hopefully <laughs> I'm going in the same direction. Yeah, I read the Donna Tart book, not the Goldfinch um, oh, the secret history. The secret history mm-hmm. years ago, and right. of course that she didn't write again for a long time. There was what a, more than a decade between yeah, she, a secret she, history. She's she's written three books, and she leaves ten years between each one. Right. Yeah. And then Arundhati Roy, who wrote the just divine God of Small Things, mm-hmm. who wrote the book, it won the Man Booker Prize, and she said, "I say I'm not writing again." Mm-hmm. But she did eventually, maybe eighteen, seventeen, eighteen years later, she long did bring another later. book out, and I really couldn't get through it. But I love the God of Small Things. Yeah, my wife couldn't finish it either. I bought it for her and she, she never made it to the end. I was end. so excited yeah. to get it but uh, it was just too tough to read. It was you know, set in India and it was very Indian. There was a lot of references that unless I think you have spent time in India or read a lot about India it was tough to get through all the references and to maintain an understanding of what what was going on. So sure. I, I just got kind of bogged down in it. Now you and I do share a favourite book uh, John Fowles's mesmerising novel The Magus. Oh you like that? Oh, oh, wonderful. It is just the apogee of a literary writing and you said that that was the book that made you want to write yeah it was it was uh, it was um long long time ago now i was i was on a bus um in probably your 20s uh, yes very early 20s and i was going from london to oxford down the m40 you're probably about the only person listening who will even know what that means um and it was raining no surprise in england and the bus broke down uh on the side of the road and i just had a really bad sort of just about to break up conversation with my then girlfriend and so everything should have been dreadful but i really didn't care because i was reading this book by john fowles that takes place as you know on this uh, uh, greek island and that was where I was. I was on a beach mm. uh, on, on a Greek island somewhere. I wasn't on the side of the road in the pouring rain. And, um, and that moment taught me, if I didn't know already, the extraordinary transformative power that, that really good literature has. 
Um, and that was kind of when I thought, oh, you know what? That might be a fun thing to try. So, so yeah, so that, that it really was, it was a great moment for me. Yeah. You see, when I read The Magus, and I read it first probably in my 20s, and the main character in the book is in his, his 20s, yeah. and so therefore it had a resonance. And I just read it again the other week because I saw it in Skylock Bookstore, and mm-hmm. I, I thought, I need to really reread this. But when I read it... My reaction is not, I should become a writer. My reaction is, this is so exquisite. This is such incredible writing that I could never, ever do this. So therefore, I won't even try. Right. And um, <laughs> how do I answer that? Because, I mean, I think one of the things that, that, that one needs to, to sit down and write a book is a degree of... Um, hubris, maybe. Just, mm. just, just that there is. It's, it's a funny thing. I, all writers I know have this sort of weird mixed personality. They, they, most of them are very shy and self-effacing. But there also has to be a degree of self-belief that you can actually do something worthwhile that other people are going to want to read. So, um, yeah. I mean, I totally understand that. And there, there are certain writers. Uh, for example, Salman Rushdie is one, and, and I sort of I read his his prose. And part of me is just um, sort of drowning in it. And the other half wants to throw the book across the room because it is so gorgeous and so right. unlike anything I know. I, c- I couldn't write a single sentence like that. And there is a degree of sort of, well, why bother? Um, but, you know, we all have our sort of imperatives that come from somewhere within us. And that's mine. And so, um, it, you know, you have to sort of get over that hump. But you're right. Mm. The writing is exquisite. I mean, I would never presume to be able to write anything quite like quite like John Fowles but um, you know I can just just do my own thing and that that's what as writers we all do we all just endeavour to plough our own our own furrow I do like uh, reading a book where I have to have a dictionary to hand <laughs> and, uh, and certainly the magus is one of those and one of my favourite words that I had forgotten about but I reread recently was is dissipience which is described as this is such a great description dissipience relaxed dallying to enjoy foolish trifles oh I like that I need more dissipience we all need more dissipience all do, in our lives yeah, relaxed dallying to enjoy <laughs> foolish trifles so um I could talk about writing for a little while longer, but let's move on to the festival, the Unbound Book Festival. Uh, You're here to give us an early sneak peek. It runs from 18th to the 20th of April this year. Mm -hmm. Tell us about who's coming. So we have a lot of people coming. We're really excited about everyone who's coming this year. Our headline, uh, our keynote speaker this year is George Saunders. Uh, who wrote, uh, well, he's written many books, but he's written one novel, uh, Lincoln in the Bardo. And, uh, you know, if you're going to write one novel, that's probably the novel you want to write (laughs) because it's won every award. It won the Man Booker Prize. It's just, it's an extra, and rather irritatingly, it's unlike anything else ever. And it's completely brilliant. And I mean, I don't know, you think you talk about Ernest Hemingway, George Saunders might very well have gone, OK, I'm done now. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to do that because uh, I've, I've totally redefined the genre and now I'm going to go off and go home. Uh, so he's uh, he's extraordinary. He's also an incredibly nice man and will, I know, be wonderful on the stage. He's a teacher. He teaches at Syracuse. Uh, and so he's used to the kind of dialogues that we we seek to have at Unbound, where people talk about craft and process and and what makes them tick as a writer he's going to be very very good at all of that uh, so that's going to be very very exciting so that's the keynote which is on friday night um at the missouri uh, theater at the missouri theater april 19th and i would say on that the um so we um every year we make tickets available online they all went in about six hours um this year but what i always say to people and um and we'll be saying a lot in the next couple of months i know is that if you didn't get a ticket you should show up anyway because um we let people without tickets in at seven fifteen. uh because one of the perils of doing a free event and everything at unbound is free is that you get a lot of no-shows mm-hmm. uh and so far in the three years that we've done this we have never turned anybody away from the keynote so 
even if you don't have a ticket you should show up anyway and the chances are obviously we can't give you any guarantees but the chances are that you will get in and if you do have a ticket and you are unable to go as was the case with me last year then do let you know is that a way of kind of giving your tickets back online you, you uh well you can just let us know you can just shoot us an email or you can give your tickets to somebody else who is going to go uh that's that's fine too We're, you know we don't make any money out of this we just want to have a full house uh and so you know the the saddest thing for us is to see an empty seat when there are mm. probably people sitting at home who would have liked to have been there so right. that's all we want to do is just is just to to, to have the best audience we can so george saunders is obviously a big a big deal um uh, on the kids side uh, we have um uh, Jacqueline Woodson, who is coming to talk to all of the eighth graders on Friday as well, also at the Missouri Theatre, but in the morning. Um, and Jacqueline Woodson is, I mean, probably the most beloved children's writer working at the moment. She's written an absolute ton of books. She's won more prizes than uh, than uh, you can name. And uh, just she's she's absolutely wonderful. And so we're thrilled that she is coming in and she is part of something that we're doing more and more every year, which is the Authors in the Schools program. Um, we sort of began it two years ago with a couple of authors and then last year we exploded it and then this year we're doing even more. Um, you know, one of the things that we always want to do is to is to encourage a love of reading in all ages and one of the best ways of doing that is to get real live walking, talking authors into classrooms. Uh, and so we will have an author going into at least one classroom in every grade from kindergarten through to 12th grade. And across all the schools. Across all the schools. Well, not, unfortunately, we can't have every school participate, but um, but we you know we, we try and chop it and change it every year so that over the course of time, everybody will get to mm-hmm. see somebody. And last year, over 3,000 students saw an author, and we'll, we're hoping to increase that this year. So we're very excited about that. Um, in terms of the Saturday, which takes place at Stevens College, it's the usual mixture of um, kind of two, I suppose you might say, three different kinds of events. We have big panels, uh, which are sort of three or four people. Uh, and then we have more intimate author conversations, which are between two two people and then we have a couple of things that are just what I call standalone events so that's just one person mm. standing up and talking but we don't do very much of that the whole point of Unbound has always been that it's a very interactive thing uh, and so we found that having two people talking is much better than uh, having somebody stand up and read from their from their mm. novel um, so it's a much more interactive thing and we always have at least a third of every event being Q&A so there's a lot of audience participation some of the panels that we have this year are I mean they're all kind of amazing but um, just, just looking at random so we have one about immigration uh, and we have um, you and I should go to that yeah, we, <laughs> we probably should I have, I have some things to say <laughs> Uh, but we have we have three wonderful. So Sarah Gambita, who's a wonderful poet, and Natalia Sylvester, who is a novelist, and then Jose Ordunia, uh, who has written a memoir. Um, all immigrants, they all have things to say about that, and that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, we're doing a panel on music, which was a lot of fun to put together. We have um, uh, an author called Wesley Brown, who's written a wonderful book all about jazz and then Kevin Koval who hails from Chicago and he's actually a professor and a teacher and he teaches hip-hop uh, so he's going to be talking about about hip-hop and then we have another professor called Donna Gaines who's written a book called Why the Ramones Matter uh, which I'm itching to get my hands on <laughs> as a as a, a Ramones fan uh, so that's going to be fun and then we also have and I'm just picking these kind of at random a a panel about prisons Um, and that's going to be a really really interesting panel so one of the people we have coming is called Shane Bauer uh, who wrote a book called American Prison he went undercover into a private prison and worked as a prison warden there uh, it's won a lot of awards. It was the, one of the Times top ten books of the year. I finished it a couple of weeks ago. It is still just enraging me. Right, grim me. reading. It, yeah. it, it is not a fun read, but it's an incredibly important mm. read. Uh, we have um, a poet coming called Reginald Dwayne Betts, who who is an award winning poet. He's also a, a, an attorney. And he's also a felon. He um, was in prison for eight years for being involved in a carjacking when he was 16. 
And he wrote, while he was in prison, he wrote a memoir uh, about that experience. And then when he left, he went to first Yale and then Princeton to do law. So, you know, he's a very, very smart guy. And he was actually in the news because he, he's, a, he's a member of the Connecticut Bar. They didn't want to uh, admit him because of his conviction. So he has a lot to say on this mm. subject, as you might imagine. And then the final person on that panel is uh, an academic called Walida Imarisha, who has edited a book called Angels with Dirty Faces, which is, is again, it's a, a compilation of prison writing. So it's going to be a really stimulating and fascinating discussion. Uh, and we're, we're really, really looking forward to that. One of the other fun things we're doing is uh, in sort of in honor of George Saunders, um, uh, Lincoln in the Bardo is, I don't know whether you've read it, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary story about Abraham Lincoln. His son Willie dies and he goes to a cemetery to see his son. And while he's there, he engages with these various ghosts who are hanging around. Uh, and so in, so in honor of that, we're having a panel about ghost stories uh, and, and, and spirit stories. And uh, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. It'll as be well. packed. Yeah, it's going to be good. And then we have something that we're calling uh, Unbound Goes to the Movies, uh, which is a series of uh, people talking about their books that have been adapted for movies. Uh, one of the people who's coming is Gerard Conley, whose book Boy Erased, uh, which was a memoir. He was supposed to actually come last year and then couldn't because uh, there was a family illness, but he's coming. And I don't know whether you saw the movie, but that, that was a, a ragtag quite recently. And his mother is played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, and there, he's a friend of mine on Facebook, and he used to post pictures of his mum standing next to Nicole Kidman. And I just thought, what a surreal experience that must be. <laughs> and, just, and, you know, I think it's one thing to have a novel adapted for a movie and that's hard enough but having a memoir adapted by mm. a movie and you have an actor who is playing you that's a whole other uh kettle of fish mm. so there's going to be a lot to talk about there and that's going to be very interesting as well some of the other things that we're doing uh we have a lot as i mentioned these conversations with lots of very interesting conversations jennifer haig who's an award-winning novelist uh, has written a book called heat and light which is all about fracking uh, and we have another a poet coming called Eliza Griswold, who, in addition to being a poet, has also written a nonfiction account of the uh, the effects of fracking on um, a, a small rural town. And so, those two are going to get together and talk about that. Um, we have people talking about historical fiction. Uh, we have people who um, have adopted real life stories and turned it into fiction. As to what that looks like. Uh, we have people talking about uh, autobiographical novels. So, in fact, I mentioned George Saunders. George Saunders' wife, Paula Saunders, has written a book called The Distance Home. It just came out this summer, very autobiographical, and so uh, she's going to be talking about that. So, we're, so they're, they're, they're both going to be there. I think that's going to be uh, going to be a lot of fun. Um, we also have, uh, I don't know whether you know about Louder Than The Bomb, which is this, mm. this wonderful uh, poetry slam contest, which was actually founded by Kevin Caval, who I mentioned earlier um, from Chicago. The, the local finals of that are going to be taking place at Unbound in the Windsor Auditorium. Fantastic. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And this uh, is all happening. Everything you've talked about except George Saunders is all happening on one day on it, Saturday. It's all happening on Saturday. Yes, and one of the things that people often <laughs> talk about uh, is that they, they sort of ask, so, well, do you have to cram it all into such a small <laughs> amount of time? Uh, and the answer is, well, yeah, we kind of do. Um, but hopefully this year we're going to be recording some of these conversations hmm. and, and turning them into podcasts so people can listen to them later. Right, I've said it on the radio now, which means it now has to, to happen, yes, right? So exactly. I've, just, I've committed myself to that now. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it is, and uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you sort of go, well, sorry, not sorry. I think it's a nice problem to have, that that's an agony of choice. But we're going to do our best to, to, to record certainly some of the big ones. And also, uh, we don't know about this year, but for the last two years, C-SPAN have come and actually recorded uh, some of the panels and broadcast them nationally and um, so there are some things that are available there as well and, and if they come back that will be another another way I didn't even that... know they did that oh yeah yeah no it's um they've, they've come the last two years so hmm. that's been that's been great so if people want to get tickets they can go to unbound festival uh, well the website is unboundbookfestival.com okay there are no tickets oh you just for the Saturday you just show up 
Um, so it's just first come, first it, it is, It's first come, first served. Um, you know, we use about six or seven different venues at Stevens. Stevens have been absolutely amazing to us from the very, very beginning. I went to go and see Diane Lynch, and within five minutes she said, I'm in. What do you need? And ever since... Every room that we've wanted, every auditorium, every theatre, it's been ours, and they have been incredible. Uh, and the rooms are beautiful, and um, yeah, people just show up, and uh, you, you, it's always a good idea to get there early and, and to plan ahead of time. We'll be posting... Um, we're, we're announcing the authors at the moment, and as we get nearer, then we'll be we'll be posting the schedule so people can actually look and make plans ahead of time to sort of work out how they how they want to plan their day. But the, the panels you've been talking about, they're not yet on the website. You no. can't see the schedule. No, okay, okay. Can. I was thinking I'd not seen it. And... No, you can see the individual authors who are coming right. in their bios, but we we haven't actually. We're still we're still planning. And but... is that list complete, or are you still confirming no, we're, people? We're we're still adding people to the list as well. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, there are lots that I'm just you reading that I, I want to go and see. So I need to make sure I'm not out of town that weekend, April 18th through the 20th. So you have something on the Thursday, the 18th, or is that mainly the children's? Uh, well, no, the children's stuff is all on the 19th. We're still planning the thing on the 18th. We haven't we haven't announced. Oh, it's a it. thing. Yeah. OK. Yes. All right. Um, on 19th, George Saunders. Uh, mm-hmm. Do turn up even if you don't have a ticket. It is likely that seats will be available because it's in the Missouri Theatre, which is a Seven hundred seats. So I'm sure there'll be space. And then on Saturday, all day, nine till five or six. Five or six. Yeah. Multiple, many, many panels to choose from. You can just go from room to room. I guess it's tough knowing which panel you're going to put in which room because they're all different sizes. You're going to try and guess which one's going to have more people. Ghosts probably going to have a lot of people. Right. It, yeah, it, it's really hard. It's really hard. And, and uh, we never get it quite right. We, <laughs> but we're learning every year. We, we do a little better. But, but yeah, you know, we're never quite sure. Unboundbookfestival.org is the website. It's, it's .com. Sorry, Sorry dot .com. <laughs> Was .org taken? You know, I, I never checked. Hmm. Okay, but you are a non-profit. Yes, we are. Okay, yes. there you go. <laughs> which is why everything is free, which was an interesting route to take. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on you to find sponsors. There was, but it was very important to me from the very beginning that this be a free festival. You know, we think that books are for everybody, and we didn't want there to be any barriers of any kind. So that's that's why we do it that way. And it's 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 a lot more work for sure, but, mm. but it's worth it. Alex George, author, lawyer, bookstore owner, and festival organizer. I don't know how you managed to fit in any private life but thank you for being on the show today and for all the work you are doing to enrich the world of literature for all of us thanks alex thanks diana you're listening to speaking of the arts and as usual we will end the show with a whistle stop rundown of some of the events that are coming up over the next seven days at the museum of anthropology this afternoon you can hear the wantonara drummers at 2 p.m in celebration of black history month first friday is here again and now that the fear of frostbite has receded for a while be sure to wander through the North Village Arts District tonight. At All Street Studios, well-known Columbia artist Kelly Collier has a new show in their main gallery. At Resident Arts, the 8th Street Maker Collective will be holding a pop-up event. At Sega Browdis Gallery, you can be the first to check out their February show with new works from Catherine Armbrust, Alex Lambert, Elena Peteva, Terence Purdy and Joel Sager. Plus at Artlandish Gallery, you can hear live music and check out the Catacomb Artists. At the Dogwood Artist Workspace, Greenhouse Theatre Project has its first curated art show featuring the artists, musicians, filmmakers and designers who collaborate with the theatre company. Tonight and tomorrow, Cabaret for a Cause returns to Talking Horse Theatre to perform the two concerts that were cancelled due to snow back in January. The concerts start at 7.30 both evenings. Tickets are $15 with the proceeds benefiting Blue Ridge Elementary School's Closet, which provides clothing and other items for children needing assistance. This is the final weekend for Columbia Entertainment Company production of Peter and the Starcatcher. The show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. The travelling production of Legally Blonde, the musical, is at Jesse Hall tonight. Tickets start at 46 and the show starts at 7 o'clock. And at Hickman High School, you can see the comedy Dearly Beloved tonight and tomorrow at 7. Tickets are $7 for adults and 5 for students and senior citizens. Tomorrow morning at the Boone History and Culture Centre, you can hear author Alison Kofelt talk about her book 
book on Haiti called Maps Are Lines We Draw. Alison was on Speaking of the Arts a couple of weeks ago, so this is your chance to find out more. Head Talk starts at 10.30 and it is free to attend. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library tomorrow, the True False team will be giving a step-by-step explanation of how to fest. Plus, there's an early sneak peek at a few of the movie trailers. That talk will start at 10.30. Tomorrow morning downtown, the Sega Browdis Gallery has their monthly Slow Art Saturday, a chance to enjoy a complimentary Bloody Mary and wander slowly around the gallery to spend time with the works that speak to you. And while you are downtown, do some shopping as multiple retailers throughout the district are offering 10% of the day's proceeds to support the True False Film Fest. Plus, if you spend over $20, save your receipt and take it to Ragtag to get a free movie ticket. At the Blue Note tomorrow night is the 90s versus noughties hip-hop edition with DJ Requiem. Doors open at 9 and that is a free event. And at Rose Music Hall, local rock band Mercury Trio perform a Jimi Hendrix salute. Monday afternoon, Joan Stack of the State Historical Society of Missouri and Faith Ordonio will give a presentation of Exodus, Images of Black Migration in Missouri and Beyond. The talk will be at Ellis Library at 4pm and the accompanying exhibition will be on display through February the 28th. Monday evening, the new music duo Transient Canvas from Boston will perform a program of electroacoustic music by contemporary composers at Whitmore Recital Hall. That's a free concert and it starts at 7.30. Next Wednesday, the Emmy award-winning PBS Children's Show Peg and Cat is at Jesse Hall. Tickets start at $30 and the show gets underway at 6.30. Next Thursday on the 7th of February, there'll be a reception at the Bingham Gallery for the MU Graduate Showcase, an exhibition of work by the Art Programme's MFA candidates. The late afternoon reception is from 4.30 till 6.30. And finally, on Thursday night, the We Always Swing Jazz Series presents the Alfredo Rodriguez and Pedrito Martinez duo at the Kimball Ballroom at Stevens College, performing for the annual Dr. Carlos Perez Mesa memorial concert you have been listening to speaking of the arts on 89.5 fm kopn columbia with me diana moxen and my good friend and sound engineer mike hagan we'll be back next week with more news views and interviews on the arts in mid-missouri stay arty columbia